Um, Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 21. Uh, when they reached the crowd, uh, let's just go ahead and establish who they are real quick. Uh, anybody remember? Jesus, James, John, and Peter. Um, they had all just done a thing, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, when they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and suffers severely. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and rebellious generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon and cast it out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. When the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, or sorry, then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, he told them, for I assure you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. This story appears three times in the Gospels, once in Matthew, once in Mark, and once in Luke. In Luke, it's like the summary of a summary of a story. In Matthew, it's the summary of a story. And in Mark is where it's the most fleshed out. So y'all can stay here, but I'm going to jump over and read it again, but from Mark 9. So in Mark chapter 9, we have the longer version of the story. Uh, also starts in verse 14, which I thought was weird. Um, so when they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. All of a sudden, when the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. Then he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Out of the crowd, one man answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever, wherever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked for your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought him to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And while this kid is rolling around the ground, Jesus looks at the father and says, If you can. Everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly coming together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and convulsing him violently. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. After he went into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can only come out through prayer. And then in parentheses in your Bible, it probably says, and fasting. So, 
My first question to you before I really launch into what I've prepared is, in these two accounts of this story, is there anything strange? I was going to use the word weird, but is there anything strange that you see in the text, uh, like, like in the literal punctuation of the story, or is there anything strange that you see in the story itself? And you don't have to see any of these things. But there are some weird things. What stuck out to me was that uh, when he was having seizures or going through this experience, there was a call to the fact that he kept throwing himself into fire and water. Right. That is definitely weird. Um, and I'll just take that and run with it. It seems weird because we see Jesus heal people, a lot, and we see him cast out demons a lot. But this is one of those very strange times where we can look at it with the advantage of, you know, living 2,000 years later and say, well, that kid is having seizures. So why does it say he cast a demon out? And the answer is in the text, well, this kid particularly has seizures whenever he's around water or fire, both things that people don't exist well in and will kill them. So that we, we should reason the same way that the people in the text do. He's not just sick. It's something else that's trying to kill him, uh, not just making him, you know, seize up. So yeah, that's an interesting little tidbit for sure. Anything else that seems strange or off-putting even? Yes, I agree that that seems weird to us. I would say we probably shouldn't think it's weird because they seem to not get it. But yeah, it is strange that they're like, you know, this happens, something they couldn't do happens immediately. They clearly thought they should have been able to do it. And they're like, well, what about us? Why couldn't we do it? Right. So I would say, yeah, you could take it as weird. For me, it was very off-putting and hard to read this passage and understand it because Jesus is, I think, pretty clearly frustrated. If you disagree, please say so because I, I, I feel like it's pretty, like the, if you're going to pick one word, it's frustrated or angry. Again, anybody disagree? Okay. I was hoping somebody would disagree because I had so many questions, but, but good. Um, is there anything strange in his frustration and in what he says? Well, as Jesus says, as he anointed his upward with prayer and perhaps fasting, and suddenly the boy is okay. I don't see Jesus praying in spirit. I'm out. I just don't like the loot of an eye or in dread. Jesus causes it to happen. What does that say to us about what's fair? Right, yes, okay, that is another super interesting part. We don't see Jesus pray as we understand prayer. Um, and there's a debate about 
if we've seen him fasting. Um, and maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. We'll get into that in a second. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of strange things in this story. Uh, another strange thing to me that nobody brought up is I told Rob, this one's a really hard one to prepare for because there's a lot of cliches in this story. Your faith can move a mountain. What does that mean, right? Is this Jesus being literal? Is he being metaphorical? Is he being literal in the way that we normally think he, like, you know, there's so many ways to understand that. The, uh, for some people, the unbelieving and unrepentant generation thing is a cliche that people throw out. Uh, and what does that mean? Um, the other great one is, well, this comes out through fasting and prayer. Well, people quote that, and they're not talking about casting out seizure demons, so there's another cliche, and that's an even more interesting cliche because in most of your Bibles, it should be in parentheses because it's not in most of the Greek texts, which means that it was probably added later. Uh, and then what's even more fun, I read from Matthew and Mark, right? In Matthew, the part about prayer and fasting is apparently not there at all. Uh, in the oldest, most complete Greek texts. In the book of Mark, the part about prayer is there, but the part about fasting is not. So it gets to be really convoluted, and you have to go, well, what does this mean, and why was it added later, and what's going on here? Um, and I had a lot of wrong ideas about what I should teach on, and finally was like, okay, the problem here is that if you're just looking at this story, you have a super limited perspective on what's going on. Um, so we have to get some context for what's going on. So, uh, for our first bit of context, uh, it, the first two words, uh, th or sorry, when they came to the disciples, um, where were they coming from? Another way of asking this question is, what did Rob teach on last week? Yes. Yep, they had been away on a mountain. What happened on that mountain? What was that? The transfiguration. Uh, a little more detail in the transfiguration. Give me a couple of highlights. Moses and Elijah show up representing the law and the prophets and Jesus is literally standing between them having a conversation. Um, how long are they there? Yeah, so they say let's put up some tents and there's lots of reasons they could say that. One of them could be maybe they were up there for a while. And if they were up there for a while... And, and, you know, walk with me here. If they were up there for a while, maybe a few days, maybe a day, it doesn't talk about them eating. So there we have a little bit of a, oh, okay, so maybe Jesus was, in fact, fasting. Um, if you ask a couple of my friends in New York, there's a good joke about in between breakfast and lunch, you're fasting because you're not constantly eating. Uh, they think it's hilarious. But, but the whole point is that Jesus maybe qualifies as fasting at that point. Um, but that doesn't really give us a great deal of context for these other confusing things or cliches. Um, so we're going to back it up, and to illustrate this, I'm going to walk from that way to this way, and I just want you to stick with me. 
Um, so way over in the book of Genesis, uh, meaning Genesis 1, God creates everything and he, he uses a word to describe it, and that word is good. Great. And then shortly after he creates everything else, he creates people, and he says that they are good upon good. And then, like a chapter and a half later, those good upon good beings, humans, mess everything up by pursuing a tree. What is the name of the tree? Rob, can you say that louder? (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people like to say, oh, it's the tree of good and evil. It's not. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um. However, I I submit to you that people didn't need the knowledge of good because they were already doing it. So what they end up taking is the knowledge of evil. And from that point on, a lot of horrible things happen. Murder, just a whole lot of things that I'm not going to list. And we get to Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, well, 11 and 12, uh, God calls down to this guy named Abram. And he says, Abram, I want you to leave your polytheistic, child-sacrificing, basically city of murder, and I want you to go to a new place. I want you to take all your family and anybody that will listen to you, pretty much, and I'm going to make you into a new nation. And he gives, this is part of the promise that God gives to Abram, who he renames Abraham. And he says, I will bless you, and all those who bless you will be blessed, All those who curse you will be cursed, and you will be a blessing to the world. So he gives a blessing to Abraham, and he gives a purpose to Abraham. And what's really important to see there is that the blessing God gives Abraham is pretty much from God to Abraham and his descendants. The purpose that God gives Abraham is from God to Abraham and his descendants to everybody else. And his whole purpose His people's purpose is to bless the world. Abraham's people, for the vast majority of their existence, do not do that. They murder, they genocide, they rape, they pillage, they plunder, they destroy. And all along the way, they have people like Moses who come out and say, this is the law and the law will teach you how to live upright, good, clean lives and you should go teach other people the law so that they can live this. And instead, when the Jewish people fail to teach the law, they just wipe out other people. That's what they do. Uh, And then along the way, you have all these other people called prophets. So Elijah, Elisha, Uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and they are constantly saying to the people of Israel, here is what life with God should look like, and here's what you're doing. And if you change your ways, you can have this. But if you don't, and you continue on this path uh, of, of your own way, of the world's way, then it will result in ruin for our nation and our people. Um. The Israelites don't change their ways, and they find that ruin. They find that destruction. And basically, they have to go into the wilderness. They go into captivity. And it's important to note that along the way, there's always someone or a group of someone, some people in the nation of Israel that are following God, that are following Yahweh. And they are preserving that 
truth of how to live with him. Um, But they are constantly persecuted, they are constantly marginalized, and on extremely rare occasion, they come into power for a few years, and then it inevitably falls apart again. After that ruin that the prophets talked about comes, this teaching of the Messiah starts to circulate, and the Messiah is supposed to be this one who will save Israel and restore them to their rightful place. And you fast forward 400 to 1,000 years, depending on you know, where we are in that story, and then Jesus shows up. And he makes it abundantly clear from the beginning of his ministry that he is there to restore the people of Israel to their original purpose, which is to be a blessing to the world. And then there's a whole lot of healing and teaching and healing and teaching and rebuking and all sorts of stuff, and then the transfiguration happens, and then our story happens. And we're going to skip that and come back, because after our story happens, Jesus' journey continues for a short time. He continues to teach, he continues to heal, he continues to train and guide his disciples, And more and more people flock to Jesus and come to him and follow him. And then every now and then he'll say something and a bunch of them will leave because it's too hard of a teaching. And then eventually he arrives in Jerusalem and he is hailed as a king coming into the city. Now at this moment, the people of Israel are on the brink of embracing God fully and completely once again. They're on the brink of declaring Jesus the Messiah and following him. And he proceeds to give a few teachings that basically says, while I am the Messiah, I'm not who you, the Messiah doesn't do what you think the Messiah does. And over the course of 24 hours, the entire city turns upon him and the message of God that he brings And just like the prophets before him, they kill him. The people of Israel again reject God's purpose for them. They reject God's blessing for them. They reject the message and the messenger. Um, And at that point, the disciples totally freak out and hide. They just lock themselves in a room and they fast and they pray because they don't know what to do. And because all their misconceptions are now gone. Jesus is not going to be a conquering hero. He is not going to lead a revolution against the Romans. He is not going to install the disciples to some sort of power, but he must have been here for a reason. And what we saw was real. And they become desperate. So they pray and they fast and they worship. And then the people of Israel, the, the Jewish leaders, continue to persecute. Uh, the followers of Jesus, and they drive them out of the city. And in that beautiful, bloody, horrific moment of uh, irony, these Jewish leaders who for thousands of years, them and their ancestors have uh, basically led Israel astray, they start to fulfill the purpose of Israel, the purpose of the Jewish people because they kick all of the followers of Jesus out and they take the message of Jesus to the Gentiles and people around the the world at the time, Asia Minor and all the way to Rome and Spain and all these places, India, if if, uh, the journeys of Thomas are to be believed, which we probably should believe them, um, start to become believers 
in Jesus and in Yahweh with no previous exposure to this God, to this deity. Um, But they start to understand that this is true and real. And there's a group that stays in Jerusalem and they try to bring the people of Israel, uh, the Jewish people, they try to bring them into this new understanding of Jesus and this new understanding of God because right now they're rejecting the blessing and the purpose. The purpose is getting taken care of, but the blessing is not. So there are Christians who stay and they teach in Israel and they're teaching to the Gentiles and to the Israelites uh, from the disciples Peter and John and from a future disciple, Paul, um, and from Jesus' brothers James and Jude. They are all totally unified in, uh, in a couple of themes. First, the themes that we've been talking about, this purpose of the people of Israel, this role of Jesus, um, uh, the desire that God has to bless the world. And they start to really flesh out an understanding of what this has all been about and who Jesus was. Um, Paul especially uh, gets into the meat of the, the, the theology um, of who Jesus was uh, And we'll go into what he says in just a second. But all of these men and the women who learn from them, one of whom probably wrote Hebrews, are all totally unified in the understanding that God has has offered blessing to everyone and that everyone is welcome to come and know God. They're also all completely unified Uh, in the belief that once you know God, once you have experienced him in your life, the natural result is change in your life. That's the natural result. So no matter what state you come to God in over the course of the rest of your life, there will be change. Um, The way that some of this change is described is putting off anger and malice and hatred and embracing love and kindness and compassion. Um, there's a lot of other ways it's described, but the, the, the gist of it is that this is a transformative thing that is happening. Paul digs a little deeper, and what he starts, uh, what he starts to talk about is he takes it back to Genesis, and he says, we all have these fleshly desires, and what he meant by that, the way it actually translates is sin nature knowledge of evil, the evil nature that is inside all of us. We all have that, but that's not what human nature is. Human nature is from the garden. Human nature is what we had when it was just us and God. Human nature is before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that is what Jesus came to teach and show us so that as we embrace that, we restore all of creation back to the garden. Okay, so that's our context. (laughs) I know that's a lot. When when they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and suffers severely. He often falls into the fire and often into water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. 
Then Jesus replied, you unbelieving and rebellious generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. I think the reason that sentence from Jesus is so confusing is because it sounds, because we know that he dies and ascends, right? Is resurrected and then ascends to heaven. It sounds like he is saying, God, I cannot wait to get out of here away from all you people that just don't get it. But then the last sentence is, bring him to me. That's because we're misunderstanding the first part. Jesus is not saying, I can't wait to get out of here away from all you people. We think that because we know that he dies and gets resurrected and ascends to heaven. What the people there would have understood is, yeah, we don't get it. We don't get it. And Jesus is saying, how can you not get it yet? You've had teaching, you've had healing, you've had me with you this whole time, and still, you don't draw near to God. But go ahead and bring him to me, right? Because what the people have done is they are essentially worshiping Jesus. They claim that they follow Yahweh, but they're like, Jesus is here, he's healing, he's the one we gotta go to. And Jesus' whole thing is, Yes, come to me, and then keep going. Keep going towards the Father. Keep going. But, yes, bring him to me. Like, you gotta come here first. Now, his frustration is with the crowd, yes, but more of his frustration is probably with the disciples because he's been with them the longest and they really don't get it because apparently what's been going on while Jesus is transfigured up on the hill Uh, the mountain, is that the disciples are just going around and they're like, you, cast it out, you, cast it out, you, cast it out. And then they find something that they can't do that with and they don't know what to do. They don't even pray, apparently. They just kind of go, oh, tough one. Why isn't this working? It's been so easy up until this moment. And they don't know how to push past that easiness. They don't know how to push into something hard, which is The reason Jesus is frustrated with them is because they've seen him pray. He's taught them to do it. They have seen him fast, and he's talked about them needing to fast. But they just go, ah, uh, this got hard. Guess we can't do it. You know what? This isn't hard to imagine, but it probably would have been something along the lines of, You know what, sir? The reason that we can't heal your son is because there's just too much evil in your family history. It's too much sin. Too much generational sin. We just can't do it. It's not on us. It's on you. Because that was the mentality of Jewish people at the time. That's how it worked. You did evil, you get cursed. It's not a stretch. It's not in the text, but it's not a stretch. So yes, Jesus is frustrated because his closest disciples don't get it. The crowd doesn't get it. But all credit to the crowd and the father in the crowd who's so desperate. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus, to help that unbelief, says, I'll heal him. He's healed. And he is. And then privately, he goes and he has this conversation with the disciples. And he says, yeah, you couldn't do it because of your little faith. And in all the other passages where Jesus uses this phrase, it can be understood as kind of like an affectionate nickname, like, you're growing, you're growing, you're growing. Here, I don't think so. I think it's pretty much, you should be grown, but you aren't. 
you're just not getting it. You don't understand what faith is. You don't understand the power of it. You don't understand why you should have it. And you don't understand what it takes to grow in faith. You just don't get it. It's because of your little faith. And then in the Matthew account, he says, I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell the mountain to move and it'll move. In the Mark account, that doesn't happen. Instead, he says all things are possible. Um, Just as like a logical thing, if we think that God used Moses and a stick to split the Reed Sea so that a bunch of people could walk through and then he closed it to stop an army behind them and that Jesus was born of a virgin, I don't think it's a jump to say, yeah, I guess a mountain could move. That could be how Jesus meant it. It, it could also be that Jesus means if you have just a tiny, teeny baby bit of faith, then you can dedicate your entire life to going and picking up a pile of sand, walking it 100 yards, and throwing it back down. And over the course of your lifetime, in your children's lifetime, in their children's lifetime, that mountain can move. You can have that small a faith that a mountain could move. He doesn't give a time frame, right? It's like, you could do that. It could be a much more literal meaning that way. But his point is, you guys don't have enough faith. And the sad part about that is, you know how to find it. You know how to grow in faith. It's a gift that's been given to you, like a... uh, Ashley gave a bunch of uh, little plants to her bridesmaids, and we made the joke that if they could keep them alive, they could be bridesmaids. It's kind of like that. You've been given a gift, but you're not nurturing it. You're not growing it. You're not keeping it alive. You're not tending to it. You just hope that the gift is going to get you through. But you actually have to do something here. There has to be some activity. There has to be some life on your side. And then we get to the prayer and fasting part. When was it added? Did he say that? Did it get added later? Did he mention prayer but not fasting? Did he mention either of them? Doesn't matter. Who knows, and it doesn't matter. Somebody put it in later, maybe, because people still weren't getting it. They still weren't getting it. They were like, well, I have this faith that I've been given in God. Why isn't the mountain moving? Jesus said that I could move a mountain, but I can't cast out a demon. I can't heal people. I can't, I barely even know how to pray. And some disciple later, or somebody, Luke maybe, going in and, you know, helping the other disciples actually write something that made, you know, sense, uh, said, yeah, you know what? They need to know that there's actual things you can do to grow in faith. So let's, let's add fasting and prayer. Um, maybe they didn't add it. Maybe Jesus said it. But the point is, There are things you can do to grow in faith. You're not just welcomed into the house of God and then encouraged to stay the same. You can. It's pretty abundantly clear that you can come to the table, you can come into the house of God, and you don't have to change. But the natural thing is for you to change. And if you don't, Recognize that that is a choice. We choose that. I know we do. She's very happy. Um, Yeah, like, we choose it. Um, I spent most of this week thinking, yeah, here's all the ways that I was when I became a believer in Jesus, and here's all the ways I've changed, and here's all the ways I still am. 
and none of those are anything other than my choice. So I'm sure there might be instances where there's things that are not a choice that you stay the same in, but most of them are your choice. If you go 15 years being a follower of Jesus and you still have an explosive, violent temper, you have embraced that explosive, violent temper and you're choosing to hold on to it and you're not choosing to grow in faith with God. Um, I think the only place where you can really say that it's like a mix of choice and a mix of physical condition is when you start talking about addictions. That's the only place. Everywhere else, it's your choice. Um, And by and large, what was that? Yes, mental illness as well, right? Yeah, that. Yeah, that's different. I wouldn't. I would not classify mental illness as a a, a sin condition at all. Um, but the point that Jesus is making here is, you have to put in effort. You have to grow to know God. And as we talked about, as soon as he's gone, as soon as he dies after another year or so of ministry the disciples immediately do all of those things because they don't know what else to do. And their stand-in, right, Jesus, this guy that they're like, yeah, we're just gonna, we've messed up a lot, but Jesus comes in and saves the day. He takes care of it. And then he is gone. And they all have to grow up really, really fast. And to their credit, they do. They really do. They immediately go into fasting and prayer and worship. Now, do they still say and do some incredibly wrong and silly things? Yes. Uh, One, they don't listen to the women. Whenever the women are like, hey, Jesus is back, they're like, no, he's not. You're crazy. Um, Of course he was. Uh, But the message to us, what we walk away with is that our question that we ask at the beginning of every service is probably only half of the question that needs to be asked. It's not, how has God been working in your life this week? The other half of the question is, how have you been embracing the kingdom of God in your life this week? How have you seen your brothers and your sisters and your wives and your husbands and your fellow Christian, how have you seen them embracing the kingdom of God in their lives this week? So, those will be the questions that we end on today. How have you been embracing the kingdom of God this week? Or how have you seen your brothers and sisters in Christ embracing the kingdom of God this week? That is not a rhetorical question. (laughs) That is a question question. Go for it. Good. Definitely. Anybody else? 
I'll say yes, but also that was very fun. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's an important distinction is uh, sometimes embracing the kingdom of God and growing in faith in it is not always an enjoyable thing. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just hard. Um, and it might be hard because of what you see and experience as you do that. It might be hard because it's actually hard to fast. Um, it might be hard because it's actually hard to take time out of your day and pray. And sometimes it's hard to confront the things that you figure out are wrong in your life or the lives of people around you when you pray. Because if you really get vulnerable and start praying for God to make things right, the wrong stuff starts to pop up um, because it requires focus. So yeah, my last thing will be this. The disciples looked to Jesus and they missed the point for a very long time. They thought, this is the guy, just him, there's nothing else. He's our meal ticket. If we stick with him, we get all the good meals and all the best places, and we're in charge. What they should have seen was, and what they did see, again, to their credit later, was this. This is the guy that's supposed to teach us how to live. And if we follow him and learn how to live, then we'll have what he has. And what he has is better than what we want. What we want is the meal ticket and all the, you know, be in charge. What he has is a relationship with God the Father. And if we want that, then our growing in faith is having enough faith to try and live like him in an ever-increasing manner. Um... They missed it at first and got it later. I have missed it a great many times and get it a little bit sometimes. Um, But that's my encouragement to you, is in an ever-increasing manner, try to be like Jesus. Don't just worship Jesus, but never change to be like him.